The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Pray with me, please. Lord God, it's true. In and of ourselves, we have no defense, no excuse for our sins against you. And so we look. We look to Jesus and his mercy given to us at the cross. This reality, it is our only boast, our only hope, our ultimate rest and joy. It's the good news. The good news that is continually worth singing about and giving you the praise that you so richly deserve. Lord, we thank you for this time of fellowship, for the grace in the bread and cup, for your church, the community and encouragement that is ours because of Jesus. Thank you for using this time to continually tune our hearts to you that we might better love you and love others. Help us now to see the power and sufficiency of the gospel as we look to your word. Give us eyes to see and hearts that are open to what you have for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's our aim this morning. To see the power of the gospel that changes hearts. To expose the idols in our lives and to put our trust in Jesus. Acts 19, it describes around three years of Paul's effective gospel ministry in Ephesus. A ministry that that so powerfully changed the hearts of the people in Asia Minor. So powerfully that the the idol industry was, was threatened. Luke gives us four scenes in this chapter. Last week we went through the first three scenes. Scenes where Paul encountered these conflicts having to do with with a lack of knowledge and hard hearts. and, And a spiritual warfare of sorts. First were those believers who were described as disciples of John the Baptist. Baptized with his baptism of repentance and preparation for the coming Messiah. They lived in this, this unique time where the, where the old and new covenants were overlapped. They believed the promise, these disciples, they believed the promise of God and were looking forward to the Messiah, but they didn't know that Jesus had already come. They lacked knowledge of the gospel, and when they, when they heard they believed and they were baptized in the name, in the authority of Jesus, entering into this new covenant. It's interesting, Luke also mentions, these details are interesting, you know, we should ask, why does he tell us that there are around 12 of them? Any significance to 12 disciples alluding to Israel, who for the most part have Hearts that are hard to the gospel, the gospel that tells them the covenant is now fulfilled in Christ. Second, we saw this hard-hearted reaction to Paul's teaching and his reasoning with them from the scriptures. And ironically, God, he prophesied through Isaiah about a highway, saying that it shall be called the way. 
the way of holiness. He made a way for his people through the wilderness and out of exile. And now Jesus is the way of deliverance. The way of deliverance from the ultimate slave master, sin. He is the way of holiness. Making us right with God and sanctifying a remnant that here in Acts is is led out of the synagogue where they speak evil of this group referred to as the way. Third, we saw these extraordinary miracles done by Paul. Uh, People being healed by touching a, a handkerchief or an apron. And these extraordinary miracles, what they really do is they authenticate the ministry of Paul, that he's an extension of Jesus's ministry, a ministry, a ministry like the prophets of old, like Moses who delivered God's people as God made a way through the sea. And like Pharaoh's magicians, we, we saw some itinerant Jewish exorcists wanting to counterfeit the miracles of Paul. It was, it was embarrassing and, and exposed them. And it left the believing community, it left them what? It left them fearing God. And unlike the Jews in Exodus, instead of, instead of fashioning a valuable idol made out of gold, what did they do? They, 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 public, they repented and they publicly burned these books of magic that were worth, in today's dollar, around $6 million dollars. So they didn't fashion an idol, they got rid of idols. It was a spiritual conflict that expressed Jesus as their greatest treasure. No no syncretism, no mixing of pagan worship as they followed God. It's one or the other. And Jesus is that treasure in a field who's worth sacrificing everything in order to have him. And of course, we don't gain Christ through, through our sacrifice, but following Jesus means, it means we're not our own, right? He, he's the master. He's the king. And as we've been reciting over these past weeks in the New City Catechism, what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul both in life and in death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So now, now we come to the fourth scene in Acts 19. So if you're, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to pick it up, Acts 19, verse 21. Follow along as I read. Now after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, but may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. You may be seated. Wow, what a scene, huh? I mean, think of it. What do we see here? People... People enraged, rioting, crying out, chanting over and over again. A city that's filled with confusion and violence, hurting innocent people, bystanders just just joining in, not even knowing why they're there, what they're doing. And then when someone tries to speak, they don't listen to him. They just shout over him. It's crazy. Chanting, shouting for the sake of just drowning out someone with noise, not even thinking about 
what they're saying because they just want to they just want to cause a disturbance. Make a scene. It's crazy, isn't it? What barbarians? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine people acting this way, right? Not like our our much more evolved, more sophisticated society of today. We would never behave in such manner. What? Okay, what prompted this? What? What brought it about? Remember, really, it began with Paul renting space at a local school. Weird. In the hall of Tyrannus, he taught, he reasoned with people daily for two years. And verse 10 really tells us the reason for all of this. Verse 10 tells us about the great success of Paul's teaching ministry, saying that all of the residents of Asia, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. And then we also read in verse 20 that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the real miracle. All the other stuff, the the healings, people speaking in tongues, all of that, it only pointed to the authority. It only illustrated the, the ultimate healing brought about by the word of the Lord. And people being set free from, from spiritual blindness. Enabling them to walk with Jesus and prevail over the disease of sin and death. Again, God is making a way. A way of holiness. Making people whole. And leading them from the greatest captivity of all. Sin and death. God was making himself known all throughout Asia. He was showing his saving power, delivering people through the gospel. And in doing so, of course, of course the idle business felt an impact by this. These things that are made by human hands didn't compare to the treasures of the gospel. The real power belonged to the one true God who is, who is not made, but who has made everything. So it's no surprise, is it, that we see this kind of scene. No surprise that they, that they burned, well, even before the scene, that, that these Christians, thinking of those books of magic, it's no surprise that they burned them. They burned their idols. People stopped buying these Trinkets made of silver. What we see in our text are these these effects of the gospel. The way or Christianity, it's, it's either embraced and followed or it's hated and attacked. But before the big riot, Paul knows, it says he knows that it's time, his time here in Ephesus is coming to an end. After the first three events, we read in verse 21 that that he's resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem 
and then to Rome. And there's a little bit of debate over the translation here because some of your Bibles, they, they use a capital S for spirit, right? ESV does. Others use a lowercase s. Some don't even say spirit. It just says Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. So, not a big point here, but it's just curious. Is the spirit leading him to go? Or is Paul purposing it in his own heart or spirit that it's time to go? Some would argue that, that Luke's intent was to simply say that Paul decided. Or he knew deep within himself that it was time to go. But, but we'd also say, well, why did he know deep within himself? What's the cause of that? God is sovereign over each day and certainly over the events of his apostle to the Gentiles. And so, is it, is it Paul's spirit or is it the Holy Spirit that's leading him to go? Here's the answer. Yes. Or do we want to... Uh, I like those kind of questions. It's both. We do what we want to do. We're not robots, and yet God ordains each step that we take. It's his story, and we are instruments in his hand to do as he wills. Paul, being the disciple maker and and church planner that he is, he always wants to follow up with people, doesn't he? He always wants to follow up with his disciples and the churches and encourage their faith. So instead of this direct route back to Jerusalem, I mean, look at that. Here he is in, in Ephesus. Instead of just heading back to Jerusalem, up through Asia, over to Macedonia, into Achaia, back around. What a heart for people. What a disciple maker he is to take this kind of of a path and before he leaves he sends timothy and erastus ahead of him and and apparently as soon as he sends them away this riot breaks out about this time we read about this fourth conflict one that has to do with idols and maybe again we think oh what barbarians idols How silly. What do idols have to do with our modern times? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller gives us a really helpful definition of idols. Here's what he writes. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Demetrius is a silversmith, an artist, a tradesman who who fashioned little things from silver, making little shrines, in this case, making little shrines of Artemis. And Artemis and the temple of Artemis, it was a big deal. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, four times larger 
than the Temple of Athena, the Pantheon in Athens. Four times larger. It was magnificent. Now, there were a lot of gods in Ephesus, but the most prominent, the most famous one, the one that really identified the whole city uh, to, to this god was Artemis. Artemis was the mythical daughter of Zeus and Leto, the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of a lot of things like wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, and, and the care of children. They worshipped her thinking that she had lordship over supernatural powers. They believed she was given the name Artemis because she made people Artemis. Artemis meaning safe and sound. Everybody wants to be safe and sound. Of course we'll worship Artemis. Also, we read about a sacred stone that fell from the sky. So apparently a meteorite or landed in the area and people associated it with Artemis and that she was not made with human hands. She fell out of the sky. Their hearts and imaginations were absorbed in the worship and the big business, really, of Artemis. Their identity as Ephesians had to do with this. It was their hope. The tourism. People came from all over to see this wonder, one of the wonders of the world. Their business, their, their tourism, their hope, it's all wrapped up into one. As people came to visit, they'd buy little statues of, of Artemis or the temple, little, little shrines to, to take home or, or to take with them to the temple as an offering. Apparently, ar- archaeologists find um, uh, artifacts, these little... Um, shrines made of uh, clay, but not silver. Um, apparently, you know, they, they just reproduced them. They'd gather the silver, melt it all down, or wouldn't last because it's valuable when people found them. So the wealth, the business, their identity, tourism, it's all a big deal. Okay, for us, think, think Lady Liberty... Mount Rushmore and the Blackbird, all all rolled up into one one giant tourist attraction. Tourist attraction slash gift store. It's a place of awe and worship, a souvenir shop, and maybe where you fix your screen door and buy a hunting license license too. So seriously though, it it was big business. Big business. In fact, the Temple of Artemis, it, it also served as a bank, a place of refuge where people would come from all over to deposit their riches. Artemis, again, safe and sound, security, hope. So, when the supply is high and the demand is low, there's going to be some layoffs. Demetrius is alerting the tradesmen, the business people, that there's a threat. Business is way, way down over each of these past two years. The first idol behind the idol of Artemis is wealth. 
This is his first concern, his first argument to rile up the people. The first idol behind this idol of Artemis is wealth. Now, okay, idols, wealth. How about you? Is this your identity? Is is this your purpose? Your security and meaning? Your comfort in life? What is your only hope? In life and death. One of theirs was wealth. And this is the lie of every idol. It promises more than it can ever deliver. It promises freedom, but it turns you into a slave. But here's the reality. All of the wealth, the abundance, we know, right? We know, and we need to live it out like this. We know it all belongs to the Lord. It's all His. He is He's the one who is rich in kindness. He is the giver of all good gifts. And He gives us what we need. And if there's an abundance of wealth that He determines, that He ordains to bless you with, it's His. It's His And we need to have a right attitude about what's His. It's His for us to do and use as servants of the only Master who will never let you down. You belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Are you seeking wealth to give you what only God can give you? Do you, do you say in your heart, if I have wealth, if I have that, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll, then I'll feel secure. I won't have to worry. If so, well, then you're just like these ancient idolaters. <laughs> and there's no promise. There's no guarantee. There may be a crash. There may be a time when you lose your hope for the future because you lose your wealth. Your idol, your idol is threatened. Another idol that we see in our text had to do with reputation. Verse 27 makes the appeal, what about the temple? The temple is Ephesus. And if it comes to nothing then we come to nothing. If if she's not viewed as magnificent and worthy of worship, then what does it say about us Ephesians? What do you connect yourself with? What's your identity what, or reputation? You know, we do the same kinds of things. What do, what do we wrap ourselves up into reputation wise identity team where's your pride if your children aren't the athlete that you were does it really bother you people live vicariously through their children but what is that is this a certain kind of reflection on you your pride your reputation 
physical appearances, athleticism, intelligence, sense of humor? What if they're not viewed as magnificent? (laughs) If you feel threatened by this, if that's our response, it kind of reveals it's an idol. What if another business or trade has a better reputation than yours? What if someone's, what if someone's just better than you? What if, your, what if your team loses? Now that's a weird phenomenon, isn't it? That we sports fans begin to describe the team that we root for in terms of we and us. <laughs> By the way, yes... We lost yesterday. (laughs) How can I live? I didn't go to the University of Oregon. I didn't play football. But when the Ducks lose, especially to the Huskies, it gives me a a sinking feeling. Why? Really, think about it. Why? Where does that come from? Why this sense of shame and disappointment? As if my reputation and success is all wrapped up into theirs. Us, we. We're all prone to it. We're all prone to idolatry because all of us have a tendency to wrap our identity up with something other than God. Our race... Our country, our state, our occupation, hobby, skill, our family, and their good name, our children and grandchildren. Now, if you notice that list, these are things that are not in and of themselves bad. But what's bad is what we do with them. How we're so emotionally controlled by them. What if people have a bad opinion? If my idol falls into disrepute or people don't care about or value them anymore, what will this say about me? That's what's going on here in our text. Oh, if the Blackbird goes out of business, what will it say about Medford? Uh, If you you get a sinking feeling in your gut, something's not right with us. And it's not that we shouldn't care about the many good gifts and people. We should care. We should invest ourselves. The answer isn't to just ignore them. (laughs) Pastor Brian said ignore our children. No. They're good gifts. But we need to see them in their proper place to God. To love and appreciate them for God's sake, to want their best for God's sake, for His good purposes. False gods enslave. They make us ashamed when our team loses. But the true God, He frees us from being controlled by these kinds of things or feelings. He he enhances us. He makes us whole. Leading us on the way to holiness. Making us the glorious person that he intends us to be. 
this idea of reputation or having your identity wrapped up into something other than God is a really interesting and pathetic reality. I've never seen, think about it, have you ever seen our country so agitated and divided? Think of this riot. When things are threatened, that's what happens. It doesn't matter. Okay, and it, and it doesn't even matter what side you're on. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter in defining this. It doesn't matter if you're on the right side of the issue, because if that's your identity, you'll end up hating what threatens it. You'll hate the other side. Even if you're on the right side, you'll hate the other side. Because they threaten you. Everyone thinks, and of course, yeah, everyone thinks that they're on the right side. And what, what are we seeing? We're seeing hatred. We're seeing riots. We're seeing harshness. Even, I, I keep hearing about even divisions within the church. Which is crazy when you stop and think about it. Divisions within the church over a lot of these issues. It's so backwards. Because what are we seeing in the book of Acts? The church is its bringing people together. Jews and Gentiles. Men and women. Different classes of society. Bringing them all together. The church brings us together where we call each other brother and sister. And where we bear with one another. And we wouldn't have to bear with one another if we agreed about everything, would we? Don't expect to agree with people in the church. Bear with them. Love them. But if we really do bear with one another, if we really do love one another then it's only because our identity is in Christ. If your identity, if it's in a mask or no mask, or a political party, or your view on social justice, or, or the environment, if one of these things, as important as they may be, if they're higher in your thinking than God, then you can't help but hate the person who threatens you. That's how idols work. That's what we're seeing here. But if Jesus is your master, if he's your identity, if he's your savior and your God, then the threats from the outside world, well, they should be expected, shouldn't they? And you should have the ability to forgive or to understand why they hate you. It's because, it's because they're opposed to Jesus. And well, that's, that's just sad, isn't it? And we need to love and we need to love that kind of enemy and bring them into Christ's kingdom. Demetrius here, he starts this riot and the gospel had an effect on the culture. He starts the riot because the gospel had an effect on the culture, because it was a threat to their idols of wealth and reputation or identity. And it's interesting how Paul and the way became such a threat. Think about it. Did Paul create a program 
and rally people to speak out and get involved in city government in order to shut down the silversmiths and idle business of Artemis? No. What did he do? He preached the gospel. He taught people about Jesus. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He planted churches. He made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. And after a a couple of years, this is described as the word of the Lord increasing and prevailing mightily over the culture. A culture that no no longer wanted the idols. The effect of the gospel in the culture is that it changed people's hearts It changed their allegiances, their actions, their identity, their hope in life and death. And it's really interesting because some of you may be thinking that I just said you shouldn't be involved in anything other than preaching the gospel. That you shouldn't be involved in government or you shouldn't be involved in rallying people to take a stand against things like abortion. Or speaking out against stuff like the trans movement, social justice. And if you're passionate and involved with these kinds of things, and you think that I'm saying you shouldn't be involved with them, then I bet you're a little upset at me right now, if that's what you think. You may even be mad. So before the irritation or the threat of your things grows, let me clarify the point. The point is that the greatest, most powerful weapon for change in our society, it will always be the gospel. Because no amount of boycotting or petitioning or government involvement or voting, none of it has the power to change a person's heart. Oh, you might make a liberal a conservative. You might convict someone to change their mind about their politics. But think about it. If you, if you cast out one demon and Jesus doesn't fill that space, well, some other's going to come along and fill that void. As Christians, we're not after wealth and national security. We're after converts changed hearts, to be a part of a kingdom that lasts forever, that's, that's the priority. That's the greatest result, which isn't to say that we shouldn't also be involved with voting and government and speaking the truth about abortion. We should be involved in those things. But wouldn't it be better if people didn't want the idol of abortion? So our priority, our calling will always be that the word of the Lord increase and prevail mightily over the people in our culture. Where's your hope? And if you're irritated with me, might I suggest that you have an idol, an idol that's being threatened. Idols create sides. Idols create sides enemies to hate and the gospel creates unity and enemies to love some of you may know about the author and speaker rosario butterfield wonderful wonderful voice 
before she was affected by the gospel, before her heart was changed, she was a lesbian activist, a professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University for around 10 years. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. And her least favorite people, the people she despised, were Christians. They threatened her idols, and she hated them. But here's the sad part. Conservative politics and people representing the church also seem to despise and hate her. And this doesn't represent Christ. They may identify as Christians, but hating someone like this doesn't represent Jesus. The people who did, the people who were used of God to open her eyes to the glory of God in Jesus, it was was just a local pastor and his wife having her over for dinner, not really even talking about the gospel for a very long time, just loving her, showing her hospitality, simple love, hospitality, Eventually, she saw the truth of Jesus' gospel. It was a long process. But to make this story short, she eventually repented of her homosexual lifestyle and is now married to Kent Butterfield, who is a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. What a shift. What a a glorious work of God. And I I think of her because... When she was under the idol of a sinful lifestyle and community, she saw Christians as the enemy. But when she converted, she didn't see her former community as her new enemy to hate. Interesting, huh? Changed, hated the other side, converted, changed sides basically, but didn't hate her former community. No, idols create enemies. And Christians love those who hate them. Only the gospel tears down the walls of hostility and shows love. This is the effect of the gospel. And when many in the church treated her with hatred and scorn, they weren't living by the gospel. Something was more important to those Christians. It it was their morality. It was their nostalgia for America. It was their self-righteous pride. They had idols too. And idols are tricky because, again, they're often good things. They're often good things that, that we make into ultimate things. Things more important to us than the gospel of Jesus. Thankfully, this older pastor and his wife saw her with the eyes of Jesus and not as a threat but as a person to love. So this, this is a text about idols and the power, the effects of the gospel. There's the idol of wealth, the idol of reputation or identity. And I think with this town clerk at the end of the chapter, there's a, there's a bit of an idol of, you know, the safety, self-preservation going on. Remember, idols are often good things that we make ultimate things. And it's a good thing that the town clerk, that he finally settles this crowd down. He's able to reason with them and and then get them to, to disperse. But ultimately, what he wants is to save his own skin. He gives them some reasons to settle down, some of which are good, like, like, 
Trust the process of the law. If they broke the law, bring charges against them. Don't, don't take matters into your own hands when, when it can be settled in a law-abiding sort of way. Good advice. But then he basically says in verses 35 through 36, it's kind of the tone of it. It's, it's like he's saying, hey, you know, what are you worried about here? It's not as if this little group known as the way is going to amount to anything. Artemis is great, and she'll always and for all time be known as great, and our city will always have a place in her greatness, this little, this little Christianity thing. It's just a passing fad. It's no threat to us. And ultimately, the idol of self-preservation comes out in verse 40, where he says, we, we really are in danger here. We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. So stop it. He wants peace, safety, self-preservation. The truth, the truth really doesn't matter as long as I'm safe. Once again, sounds familiar, doesn't it? The truth really doesn't matter. What matters is that we're just all safe. That's what we want. Not facing the truth of the gospel and the obvious power it's had in the matter of in the matter of two years to change the hearts of the people to the extent of threatening their wealth and identity. It's a false peace, a false security. Artemis's days are quickly coming to an end. The yeast of the gospel is spreading, it's permeating their society and eventually the whole world. He wants peace. And it may be, it may be temporarily achieved, but it's not ultimate. Because there will come a day when charges are brought against him. He'll be the one standing before the ultimate judge, the one who once offered him true peace. Because he's the prince of peace. There's a lot of idols. A lot of idols. And they always, always, always lie. They offer what they can't deliver. But the effects of the gospel give us a greater wealth. A greater identity. A greater peace. We're given a new heart with new desires. And we're assured of these blessings. Blessings that, that don't depend upon you. Don't depend upon your performance. No, idols demand your performance. But in the gospel, Jesus, he's already done it. He is our eternal wealth. He is our identity. He is our everlasting peace. That's good news, isn't it? May God help us. Because in describing these things, we all struggle. We need to identify the idols in our lives. And we need to look to Jesus and trust Him. May God grant us eyes to see the riches of our glorious inheritance in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we do live in very troubled times. And yet we should know that there's nothing new under the sun. That there have always been troubled times. Your son told us to expect the hatred of those who ultimately hated him. 
and we recognize that this hatred comes from a threat. It began in the garden when Satan was threatened, wanting to be God, and Adam was threatened, thinking, Lord, that you are keeping something good from him. And Cain was threatened by Abel's better offering. And the religious leaders were threatened by the ultimate offering of Jesus. Lord, help us to see the idols in our own lives, to fear you and repent and rid ourselves of the things and attitudes that are ultimately more important to us than our unity in Christ. Lord, our desire for refuge is met in you. Our desire for wealth and security and reputation are ultimately and only truly found in you. Only you. For you are holy, holy, holy. We worship you. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.